get through tonight. You've made it through 21 weeks in Ecclesiastes. It's been a good journey. Hopefully it's been uh, a good journey for you. I think there's so much to be um, to be learned and, and grasped. 21 weeks. Yeah, 21 weeks. in a... <laughs> We should just stop this right now. I'm a liar. I, don't, I can't, shouldn't be teaching anything tonight. No, it, it, um, it's been a long time, and it's been good, and uh, tonight I'm excited because um, this is the finale. I don't know about you. How many of you guys, you have a show that you watch, and you're in like season whatever, and you know that the finale's coming up, and, and you always get most excited about the finale. Anyone like the finale? Or, or like uh, in a concert, when you know that all the bands lead up to the main band, and even at the end of the main band, they want to come back out for the finale, and um, we just love finales. We love the climax of a book. We love what it all leads up to in like a, a tie game with a couple seconds left. There is um, the announcer will say as that field goal is about to be kicked that it all leads to this. It all ends here. It points to this. This is it. This is what it all comes down to. And that's where we are with Ecclesiastes. We're in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verses 8 through 14. And I'm going to read these verses for you again. We'll play the theme game. We did that last week. Hopefully that made you sweat a bit. We'll do that again. And, um, and I want you to think uh, about um, the immediate theme. Uh, what, what is Solomon talking about? If we just take his words for uh, what they are, right, in context of the whole book. But then also, and you have to ask yourself this about every passage you read in Scripture. How does this point me to the gospel? How, how is this pointing to Jesus? And so let's walk through. In verse 8, it says, Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. And the teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick, with which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless, and much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Now here here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And that's it. What are some things that come to mind theme-wise in these last few verses? Any ideas? I think there's a couple. One that's maybe a little more obvious than the other. You see, Solomon does two things here. He, He... has a few verses about uh, who he is and reminding who he is. Some scholars um, debate whether these verses were added later, someone talking about Solomon, um, or if this is just Solomon speaking in the third person here. But it's talking about him and his credibility and what what he did to remind you of who he is. But then it gives us the meaning of life. 
right? Like he, he tells us at the very end, this is the whole story. This is the conclusion. This is what it's all about. And so those are the two main things that we're going to talk about. And now if you were at home, it would be easy for you, if you were just reading this by yourself, to skip over those few verses that lead up to verse 13 and 14, right? Because when we're talking about what do we want to know, what do we need to know, the meaning of life generally is pretty high on the list. And so we're just like, let's just focus on verses 13 and 14. But I, I want I want to park a little bit on the verses before that because um, they tell you about Solomon. And I don't want to degrade Solomon in any way, shape, or form, but I want to exalt the gospel. And so the theme for tonight is that Jesus is the better Solomon. He's the better Solomon. You see, we've, um, we've talked about this quite a bit, and I want you to make sure that you don't you don't get through this series without just grasping this with every bit of your being that all of the Bible points to Jesus. The name of Jesus was not mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. Jesus did not come to earth until a thousand years after this book was written, before all this played out. And so he doesn't know Jesus like we know Jesus. But the whole plan of God, everything points to Jesus. If you look at the major events, particularly the Old Testament, uh, if you look at uh, the major characters, the people, they will show you in many ways both some attribute that, that is good that points to the Savior and then also their own flaws that point to the fact that they're not the Savior. For example, you look at a Noah and you say, wow, he, he rescued his family from this flood and yet he couldn't rescue himself from his own family. If you read what happened after the flood, it's kind of gross and kind of weird, right? Um, you, you look at Abraham and you say, he fathered this huge nation and God promised it, but he couldn't even conceive with his wife outside of God's divine providence. You look at Moses and you say, he was a great deliverer, he was a great leader, but he couldn't deliver himself or lead himself into the promised land. He died looking over the river. You, you look at uh, David, and you say, he was amazing king, but he killed his own soldiers. He killed his own guy. And, and so all these point to the, this idea that Jesus, he is the better deliverer. He's the better rescuer. He's the better father. He's the better king. He is the better everything. These men who showed us an attribute of Jesus and then showed us an attribute of themselves that couldn't live up to what we need in a perfect, holy God and Messiah. I'll point us to the fact that, gosh, these are all pieces to this puzzle that only one man can fulfill. It's all about Jesus. And when you see that, you see the whole Bible in a new way, and it comes alive and opens up in your mind in ways that glorify God. Because you say, this is, this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. So, the good advice means nothing if it doesn't point to the good news. Here's six ways tonight that we're going to see um, how Jesus is the better Solomon. Let's jump on in. Verse 8 and 9. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. So almost 40 times we've seen that word meaningless. We talk about how that means breath, vapor in the Hebrew. Um, without Christ, without the kingdom of God, just this kingdom on earth, everything is meaningless. Everything is. Verse 9, keep this in mind. The teacher, so he's talking about Solomon, whether it's Solomon talking about himself or someone else talking about Solomon who wrote this. The teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The first way that we see that Jesus is the better Solomon 
is that Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. Solomon had wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. Now, he says that the teacher taught people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many Proverbs. It says that uh, in 1 Kings, you can go back chapter 1 through 9. We'll, we'll tell you quite a bit about Solomon's life. It tells you that he, he um, studied over and wrote 3,000 Proverbs. He wrote over 1,005 songs. He, he spent his time, if you read the book of Proverbs, we believe most of that, if not all of that, book was written by Solomon. He, he spent his life devoted to this. You listen to a guy who is devoted to figuring out one big thing. And his thing was, what's the purpose? What's the meaning of life? It says that in chapter 3 of 1 Kings that he prayed, and God said, what do you want me to give you? And he said, wisdom. And God said, I'm going to give you wisdom. Unlike anyone's ever had wisdom, I'm also going to make you rich. I'm going to bring honor to you like no one's ever had riches or honor. And so he's the wisest man that we know. The problem is Solomon had wisdom, but he didn't always live wisely. And there's a big difference between having wisdom and being wise and living wise. You see, the wisdom that Solomon had, if you remember, uh, also in First Kings chapter 3, an account of two prostitutes who were both pregnant and lived in the same house, and they had babies within three days of each other. Remember that story? And so one of them had a baby that died in the night, and she stole the other lady's baby and claimed that it was hers. And so they go before Solomon, who is a judge, and says, this is my baby. The other baby died. This gal stole it from me. And the other one says, no, this is my baby. The other gal stole it. And, and they fight back and forth. Who's the mom of the baby? And Solomon says, well, how about I get a sword and I uh, cut the baby in two. And then I give you half of the baby and you half of the baby. And one of the moms says, no, 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 don't cut the baby in half. Give the baby to the other woman. And the other woman says, no, cut the baby in half. And Solomon says, the first one is the mom. And everyone was blown away at Solomon's wisdom in that situation. You see, Solomon had a wisdom that discerned truth and applied truth in, in any situation. Regardless of circumstance, he knew what to do. He was a great judge. He was wise in, in that way. But he didn't always do the wise thing. He didn't always live it. You see, God, way back in Deuteronomy warned the Israelites that if you have a king one day, they shall not do three things. You know what those three things are? God said, this is going to be a downfall. Any king that you have said, if they get a whole bunch of wives for themselves, there's going to be issues. They're not going to focus on me anymore. They're going to have a whole bunch of wives. If they have a whole bunch of money that they selfishly stored for themselves, there's going to be issues. If they have uh, accrued for themselves many horses, many chariots, being that, that they have a big kingdom, they have a big army, then, then there's going to be issues. Solomon did all three. He had 700 wives, 300 mistresses. He had, he had 40,000 uh, horses. He had 12,000 chariots. He had all of the money that anyone could ever imagine. He had everything. Some of that God blessed him with, and some of that he accrued out of his own greed and selfishness. So the dude had wisdom. He knew what to do, but he didn't always do it. Jesus didn't have that problem. Jesus is the better Solomon. Jesus was always wise. Jesus, he, he amazed people with his teaching. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. He didn't just have wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. You say, what is the wisdom of God? Look at Jesus. 
There's no example where you say, oh, he knew what to do, but he didn't do it. He just is the wisdom of God. He amazed people. When he was a kid, he taught. People were in awe of him. You go through the Gospels and just do this check for yourself. Say, how many times does it say that after he taught, people were amazed at him? They were in awe of him. Over and over and over. Believers and non-believers alike. Religious and non-religious. They were in awe because the dude was wise. And he was more than that. He was more than that. You see, sometimes you and I, we know what the right thing to do is, but we don't do the right thing. Sometimes you and I want to do the right thing, but we don't know what the right thing is to do. Sometimes we know what the right thing to do in a situation is, and we actually do that, but our hearts don't desire that. You're like, oh my, we can't, we can't put this wisdom piece together. We, we can intellectually understand things, but we don't always do things. It just, it's a struggle. Jesus didn't have that struggle. Jesus' head, heart, and hands always aligned with the will of God. He always knew what God's will was. He always desired God's will, and he always did God's will. He is wisdom personified. So we listen and we obey what Solomon's telling us in Ecclesiastes, but we abide in Jesus because he is wisdom. Verse 10, the teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. Number two, Jesus is the better Solomon because Jesus is truth. Solomon had truth. Solomon expressed truth. Jesus is truth. He is truth. Solomon spoke it, but Jesus is. In John 1.14, it says that Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. You see, some people, they like to think they have truth and test Jesus against our own truth. Some people see the Jesus of the Bible and say, well, you know what, based on my experience or my secular philosophy or, or what I deem to be moral and true, I'm going to see if Jesus meets my standards. And, and the Bible makes it clear That's not the way it works. Whatever Jesus says and does redefines what truth is for you. He's just truth. If he does it and you didn't think that was true, guess what? You better redefine truth. We don't test God against our truth, our morality. We recognize what morality is and what truth is based on what God says and who Jesus is. Pilate stood before Jesus and said, what is truth? He didn't know he was looking at truth. (laughs) He didn't know he was looking at truth. Solomon, um, he sought to express it. He sought to express it. You ever said the right thing to someone who needed advice? They came to you because they needed to hear truth. And you kind of prayed through it and then, you took a deep breath. You're like, God, please give me the words. Please give me the words. And so then you, you did your best to give them godly advice, godly truth. But then deep down in your soul, you're just sick to your stomach because you knew that you could tell them the right thing all the day long, but they weren't going to do it. Maybe you know someone, maybe you are someone who has made the same mistakes over and over and over and over. And it's not that, that you don't know what the truth is, but you just don't do What's true? You, you don't, you, 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 you know, this is where I'm supposed to go, but I don't feel like I got the power to do it. 
You see, what Solomon has to offer us and what we offer each other is truth in the form of word or doctrine, right? There's truth that's theological. There, there's truth that, that, that is in our words. There's truth that's just truth. It's head knowledge. But Jesus changes and redefines how we all understand truth. Truth is more than just doctrine. Truth is more than just philosophy. Truth is a person. What does John 14, 6 say? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's truth personified. You want to know truth? Truth is a person. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus. This changes everything for us as humans. And so, when you read the Word of God, Jesus does something that Solomon, uh, in and of himself, would not be able to do. You see, when you read Scripture, it's alive, and Jesus, through the Bible, through his Spirit, Jesus tells us what to do and empowers us to do it. I am... I love projects. I'm always getting my hands dirty trying to do a project at home. And my dad, this is one thing we connected on growing up, he's a project guy as well. He just always, he was a weekend warrior before weekend warriors were cool, right? Before there were Home Depots, he was he was doing all of these projects all the time. And I remember, I learned early on uh, in high school that if I wanted my dad to get involved and empower me to do something, I just had to ask his advice. Because once I got him mentally engaged, game over. He was just going to help me with it. And so I would ask him a question like, Dad, what do you think I should do about this um, project? How do I build this? How do I, how do, I do this? And he'd say, well, uh, <clears throat> I guess, uh, you know, I, you, you need to, what you really need to do is you need to do, put this here, and, and then you need to get this. Do you have some of the, yeah, put it here. And then before you know it, he would do this number. He'd, he'd kind of sigh, uh, well, if you're going to do it, you, you, you might as well do it right. Right? And, and then I knew. That means you're going to do it right. And he was going to do it. I remember when I had an old truck, an 84 Chevy Scottsdale. It was my baby. It was rusted out so much in the fender. I, I, I literally think you could have climbed in and slept in that thing. Like it was just rusted out to pieces. But I loved this truck. I wanted this truck to be awesome. And I remember talking to him about what it would look like to rebuild this thing, to, to, to just start ground up and to make this thing new. And he said, well, if you're going to do it, you need to do it right. And he didn't have much money, but he started investing money. He started taking it to mechanics who, who knew what they were doing. And, and he spent the time, the energy, the money. He was all in. He didn't just tell me this is how you do it. He empowered me and walked with me to do it. And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? That's the difference between one of us giving each other truth and you knowing truth in Jesus. Jesus doesn't just tell you what to do. He empowers you to do it. He says, this is the direction we're going. Let me take you there. It changes things. It changes things. Jesus is truth. Verse 11. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. Third way that Jesus is better. Jesus is the better shepherd. He's the better shepherd. So there's a whole bunch of uh, metaphors, analogies, descriptions of God's church. And one of them is that we're sheep, right? 
That we, we are lost. We need a shepherd. We need someone to guide us. And God is that shepherd. Solomon had shepherding skills and that he had words of wisdom. Um, they were like little prods. You ever feel like that when, you, when, you're, when you're reading the Bible and you're, you're not necessarily expecting to, to kind of get gut punched, but then you read something and you're like, ooh, that hit me. And it didn't feel good, but you knew you needed it. And Solomon says that that's what wisdom comes from. That's how wisdom starts. A lot of times wisdom, the beginning of it for you in your life applied is a gut punch from the Bible. And so embrace that. But Solomon, he tells us what to do from a distance, but he can't walk with us to actually carry it out. Jesus does he tells us and walks with us like i mentioned before in ezekiel chapter 34 and 37 uh, he says that one day there will be one shepherd so not many shepherds one shepherd pointing to jesus in john 10 um, jesus says that he is the good shepherd and he lays down his life for us in first peter chapter 4 uh, peter says that jesus is the chief shepherd in hebrews chapter 13 the author calls jesus the great shepherd he's a different kind of shepherd he knows exactly where to take us, exactly how to get us there. He protects us. He walks with us. He does everything needed. You just got to submit. You got to walk in faith. You got to submit. Some of us don't experience God's presence in our walk with Jesus. And isn't that crazy to say? But it's a reality for a lot of us. We hear commands, but because we view God like a distant judge or landlord who we just talk to on the phone and say, hey, I got issues in the house. Can you fix them? And hope that even though you can't see them, some work's getting done. And by the time you get home at night, things will change. Say, I hope someone was here to take care of this. And we view God in a way that's kind of... um, and we would call this deism, right? Where there's, there's a God out there and he's sovereign, but he doesn't walk with humanity. He's not in the daily affairs of man. And some of us, we, we experience that. That's what we think God is. So yeah, I think he's working in everyone else's life, but he's not really working in mine. And you need to know that when you sign up to follow Jesus, you're not signing up to follow a bunch of rules that are given to you and, and then he walks away. He is saying, come and follow me. And he's walking with you. He's walking hand in hand. It's like when I go to hardware stores, I despise going to hardware stores when I don't know exactly what I need. And you see anyone who walks into a hardware store, it doesn't matter if it's a big box store or a local one, like those who know what they need, they're confident, they just go straight to where they need. And you're just like, oh, they don't want to talk to nobody. But then you see that other group of people who walk in and you can tell they're clueless. They're just looking, they're like looking down the aisles. They don't know exactly where they're to go. And I hate it when that guy's me. And I'm thinking, oh, how it's going to take me forever. I don't want to take Silas in here because it's going to take 30 minutes to find this little part that I need. And if I ask someone, let's be honest, what are the chances that they're going to know exactly what I need or where it is? I worked at a hardware store for years. I can tell you. <laughs> it was not required much. I remember they held up a 90-degree um, angle piece of uh, PVC pipe, and they said, what is this? And I said, I don't know. And they, <laughs> they said, you're hired. And I got hired. I worked there for two years. I didn't even know what a basic 90-degree angle, little 
couplet thing. I still don't even know exactly. And I just got hired. And so I walk in, I think, oh, it's horrible. The other day, though, I walked into one of the hardware stores and I didn't know exactly what I needed. And I found a guy and I said, can you help me? And he said, yes, I can. And I said, I'm kind of looking for this. And normally they just point you in the direction and they say, look down this aisle and you got to go figure it out. And you're like, your aisles are like seven miles long. I don't know if I'm going to find it. But he got up and he walked with me and he stopped with me and he talked with me and he told me, this is what you're probably looking for. And then we decided together, "Mm, it's probably over here. And we did it together. And I was like, dang, this is the way it should be. It was Lowe's. (laughs) It was Lowe's. And and Jesus is saying, I'm not just going to point you in the direction. I'm going to shepherd you in the direction. He is the better shepherd. Verse 12. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless, and much study wears you out. Number four, Jesus is the Word. Solomon had words, but Jesus is the Word. You see, Jesus is the Word that makes Solomon's words come alive. Apart from the Holy Spirit, inspiring these words, Solomon would just be another wise philosopher speaking and his words would be lost in antiquity. They would be somewhere in history that no one would would find. But because they are inspired by God, they are now the word of God, but it's Jesus and his power and his word that makes Solomon's words come to life. Without Jesus, these words would mean nothing. But they're inspired by God. You see, John 1, 14 says to us again, the word became flesh. This is what we celebrate every Christmas, the incarnation. That the Bible took hands and feet. And it's not just some distant, random book that has a bunch of things we should and shouldn't do. It is God in, in the flesh coming to say, I'm not just telling you what to do. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to fulfill what you couldn't fulfill. I'm going to be perfect when you're not and you're not. You see, this is crucial for you and I because um, for Jesus to be the word who, who became flesh, some people will often say about some of the hot topics, whether it be homosexuality or, um, gosh, you just go down the line of hot topics that, that our culture talks about in 2017. They say, well, Jesus didn't address those things. And all you got to say, you go back to John chapter 1. If he is the word become flesh, he's the whole Bible. There's not a part of the Bible that Jesus didn't put his stamp on. He's the whole thing. He's the whole thing. He doesn't have to address it verbally in the Gospels to have his hand on it. Because he's the word become flesh. His words are always perfect. They're always timely because they are timeless. He's the Bible. Some of us... um, I think this is the heartbeat of what Solomon's saying here. Some of us have, as some would say, analysis paralysis. Solomon's saying, my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. Some of us, we do so much research on something. Solomon's saying, I I just gave you 11, now 12 chapters of this, right? He didn't know they were chapters. We made them into chapters. But he gave us this big, long book about wisdom and everything there is. And now he's saying, you got to actually do something. Words... Only matter if you, if you do something with it. What, 
What about you? Do you have a hard time making decisions? Do you have a hard time taking head knowledge and then living it out? If you're buying a house, are you the person who does like crazy amounts of research on MLS listings and then you can't decide, you know, I want to go here, don't want to go there. Are you, the, are you the person who dates the guy or the girl for years and someone says, you guys going to get married? And then you say, I don't know. What else do you need to know? How long do you need to be with them, right? Do not rush out and get married to whoever you're dating. I do not need those emails. But do you have some analysis paralysis? Are you, are you someone who does a bunch of research and not saying that you're the writer of the books, but maybe you're the reader of the books? That study is wearing you out. Have you read the Bible through and through? Have you jumped in and said, you know what? I'm going to really dig in to see who God is, but you don't actually take a step of faith. The Bible's worthless to you outside of condemning you. But, but you've come face to face with truth if you're not walking by faith. You can't stay in that world of investigating forever. That is not honoring to God. Some people use that as an excuse. I'm in this place where I'm just trying to figure out the Bible. Well, hey, when you figure it out, let me know, <laughs> right? Because there's just elements of it. There's elements of it that you will never and I will never fully understand. And if you understood every bit of this book, you'd still miss out because not everything that God has ever done or said is in that book. There's a window that's just only filled with faith. You've got to take it. I challenged my brother years ago, um, knowing that God's word is powerful. I studied him, or I, I challenged him to study the word of God. And he's an intellectual, and he was just finishing up his master's degree, and I thought he had some time. I said, read the Bible. Two months later, he came back to me and said, I read the whole Bible, front to back. I said, uh, not expecting that he actually would. And I said, what do you think? He said, oh, yeah, some of that Old Testament stuff. I don't know if I can believe that. And then Paul, he's kind of a weird guy. I don't know about him. And, and he just had a few more comments. And that was it. That was it. I wish I could tell you, like, man, he got saved. Everything was amazing. He walks by faith. No, he doesn't do anything with it right now. But I don't lose hope because I do know that God's word doesn't come back void. And the story's not over for him. And I believe now that he has some knowledge of that, God's going to use that to convict him and to speak to him. But for a guy who just says, I'm just going to read it like a history book. Now, the word of God is bigger than that. Jesus is the word and he's a person and he is God and he's powerful. It's not just a history book. Verse 13 all right, now we're getting into the good stuff. The meaning of life. So that's the whole story, he says. Don't you like when people, like, maybe I'm this preacher that you dread, I don't know. They, they, you can go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever about things, but just get to the point. What, what's the point? I appreciate when I'm talking to people and they just get to the point. Or when a book is, I just was reading a book today, 32 pages long. It's like, that's that's good. I I mean, does it need to always be 184? I don't know. Um, Sometimes a 32-pager is better than than not. Solomon's saying, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. So this is it. You ready? This is, drum roll, 
Will, you're the drum guy. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. So this is it for everybody. Number five, Jesus is the better Solomon because Jesus is the hero of the story. Up until this point, Solomon has had all the answers, but he in and of himself is not the answer. He's not the answer. He's a good dude used by God, wrote this incredible book. But Jesus is the answer that Solomon is ultimately pointing to. He says, this is the whole, th- this is the whole thing. As far as he knows, this is the whole thing. It's the meaning of life. Of course, Jesus is the hero of this story because he, he obeys God perfectly. He never made a mistake. He is God in the flesh. He is holy, and he obeyed every prophecy. He fulfilled the commands that God had so that you and I uh, don't have to fear judgment in terms of hell, but if we're found in Christ, um, then we fear God in awe and, and reverence recognizing he's still just as scary as he was before, but you in Christ don't have to fear hell. So Jesus comes into the story. He rescues us. He's the point, the focal point of this story. Let me ask you. Now, fearing God and obeying his commands as being the point of life, the meaning of life, we've talked about that several times over the last 21 weeks. Solomon's mentioned it before. But when you read that, this is my final conclusion, what did that do to you? I mean, if someone was going to ask you, what's the meaning of life? What does it all point to? What would you tell them? There's so many different angles. There's so many ways, things you could say, right? How did you feel about his answer? Did you think, yeah, kind of a letdown. You see, for most of us, we would say something just in not this room, but most people, particularly in America, we would say something like, well, just do whatever makes you happy. Just enjoy life. Just take care of number one. In most of our definition of the meaning of life, it would be probably fairly self-centered. And this is a wonderful, beautiful heart check because if you didn't get pumped up a little bit inside with his answer, it might be because his answer is very God-centered and most of our answer to the meaning of life is very self-centered. And we say, that sounds like it just glorifies God. Doesn't sound like that's very fun to me. But that is the meaning of life. See, to fear God, as Proverbs says, it's the beginning of wisdom. So we just had a whole book about wisdom. And yet fear is is the beginning. You can say, what are we going to do with all this that we've learned? God's sovereign. We're flawed. Everything on earth seems to be depressing and meaningless apart from God. Like, What do we do with the previous 12 chapters? And he's saying, here's the outcome. Here's where you get. You don't get to a place where you're so depressed that you say, let's just be suicidal. What's the point of even being here? That's not the goal. No, you get to a place where you are dependent on God. You see, all throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon has tracked with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He's talked about the beginning, the meaning of life, all that stuff. But now we we see in Genesis, Eve wanted to be God. He wanted to be God. And say she ate from this tree that, that was knowledge. So that 
as the serpent said, you could be like God. And ultimately, what it means to fear God is to recognize, you know what? To be fully human is not to be God, but to recognize God over you and to submit to him and to be dependent on him. And that's really, really good news. It may not sound like it, but if we got real, for those of us in this room who are stressed, who feel like we got the weight of the world on our shoulders, for, for those of us who feel like, man, I got so many responsibilities and sometimes I just can't, I just can't do it. And then you look at a little baby resting in, in mom or dad's arms, just doing what babies do and, and ultimately being fully dependent on their father, on their mother. So Solomon's saying that, that in a way, that's the meaning of life. That you're just fully dependent. You're fully dependent. To fear God is to have an awareness all the time that he's supreme, that he's sovereign, that he sees all, that he judges all. You've got, if you're going to fear God, you've got to have a high view of God. We do not have a very high view of God in 2017. We have watered God down in ways that, that are radical, to be honest. We've got a post-1960s hippie version of God where he's fully tolerant and he's up there just doing his thing with long hair in heaven. And he's like, guys, enjoy life. Do what you want. Can I bless you? I'm like a waiter. Can I come and just serve you? Can I do anything for you? And, and, and we just don't take God serious. When we hear about fear, we say, oh, but this doesn't mean we should be scared of God, right? That's not what Solomon means. No, he does. <laughs> Uh, you, you, sometimes it's good just to open the book of Revelation and just read for a bit. Say, I don't understand all this. Just understand the part where God's really scary and we bow down. If you understand that part, you've got a good grasp on reality and the book of Revelation. But that's the reason you don't see God's power and presence in your life is because you've dumbed him down and watered him down to be just a little bit better version of you. And Solomon's saying, that's not the way it was meant to be. God is God. When you see God, it is to be a dreadful experience that you fall on your face and you just say, kill me now. Woe is me, says Isaiah. I'm dead. That's what he said. What would you say? We say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about why my dog died in the seventh grade. No, you're going to fall on your face. That's what you're going to do. Or you don't follow the God of the Bible. You're not going to have a conversation with him like, guess, you know, the last few years, oh, my back started aching. It was weird what was going on down there on earth. No, you're going to say holy, holy, holy for eternity. That's more in line with who the God of the Bible is. And we need to get back to a place where we recognize there should be a legitimate fear, recognizing in Christ, again, you're not concerned about being condemned to hell. You're going to heaven, right? But you still recognize he could do anything he wants. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He is powerful. When you walk around in your daily life with a healthy fear of God, it will put you in a place of understanding and perspective that will change your life. You won't sin like you used to. You won't grumble like you used to. You won't think, hey, what am I doing here? You will be a person living with purpose and living with perspective and living with a passion to serve this God. 
some of us have watered God down to the point where we fear public opinion more than we fear God. We fear what people on Facebook would say about a bad picture that we post more than we fear Judgment Day. I mean, think about just for a second how twisted that is. We're talking about God. We're talking about God. If your life doesn't involve like this kind of awe and fear and just like, God is God. It's like, this is, that's not an experience for you. That's not a reality for you. That's not a truth for you. It might explain everything for you. It might explain why you're missing all of these promises and all this stuff that it's talking about in the Bible. Because the foundation of a relationship, the foundation of wisdom is fear. So how do you fear God? Let me, let me give you a few um, questions that a person who fears God is going to ask in their heart on a regular basis. Number one, what does the Bible say? If you fear God, regardless of what situation you're in, you're thinking to yourself, what does God and his word say? Not what do my friends say? Not, not what, is, what do I think? What do I want? But you say, God's word is the authority over my life. And I just want to do what it says. You want, you got a passion to know what God's word says. Number two, you say, where, where can I seek godly counsel? Meaning, when you and I need advice, there's a million people we could go to. But if you care about being corrected and rebuked because you care more about bringing God glory than you do about anything else, then you say, you know what? I might be wrong in this situation. There's someone I'm having an issue with, and they've got a jacked up personality, and I've got a jacked up personality, and I want to believe it's mostly all them, but something inside says it could be partially me, and I'm going to put myself under the authority of some godly people, whether it be pastor or or leaders or just godly Christians, and and I'm going to be prepared for whatever they say because I want to get in line with God more than I want to get in line with the rest of the world. If you fear God, you're going to ask yourself on a regular basis, how can I best glorify God in this situation? Not how can I win? Not how can I salvage my reputation? Not how can I get my way and manipulate things? Some of us are in situations right now where it feels like it's a lose-lose. Maybe you're in a work situation where you think, I got to make a decision. And if I go left, it's going to make me look kind of bad. Or if I go right, it's going to make me look kind of bad. And you realize it's not about how I look. It's not about winning or my reputation. It's about glorifying God. How can I point people to him and magnify him and make him famous? Because it's all about God. Your heart says, regardless of the situation, it's not what's best for me. It's about what honors him. Number four, you're going to ask, What does it cost? Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke that anyone who follows him wants to be his disciple is going to count the cost. He doesn't tell you, just blindly jump into following me. No, he says, count the cost. Any commander who goes into battle, they're going to say, how many troops is this going to take? What am I going to lose? There's a cost to this. Anyone who builds a house, the builder first says, "Eh, this is going to cost someone. We need to figure out what. And Jesus says, "If if you're going to follow me, if you're going to live for my glory, you've you got to count the cost. And it means you actually choose 
no matter the cost. To fear God means this is going to cost me things and hurt. I'm going to have to not hang out with certain people and I'm going to then have to hang out with other people that I don't want to. It's going to hurt to pull away from these people because they've been lifelong friends, but they are pushing me in this direction. And then there's another group that I don't even want to reach out to because they're weird and I've never crossed paths with them. But God's saying, take the gospel here. And then there, there's, a, there, there's my schedule and there's the things that I prioritize. And, and God's saying, do less of this and do more of this and, and seek me. And, and it's going to change things. And maybe I need to sell this and maybe I need to give that up. Or maybe I just... I, what does it cost? And then say, it's worth it. I'm doing it. If he says, do it, I'm doing it. People who fear God do that. It says, obey. Fear God and obey his commands. Do you, um, do you care about obedience? Do you care about repentance? Like, are those priorities for you? Do you know what Jesus commands? Some of us know more about what's going on in the culture, what's happening in the news, what, what, what's happening in social media than we do about what, what our Lord has commanded us to do. People who fear him, obey him, because ultimately you obey who you fear. When I was growing up, and this isn't very popular, but I'll share it because it's reality. My parents spanked. And we had at our house what we called the stick. And it was like this long. It was probably four feet long. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't very thick or big. It was just a piece of wood, probably two inches wide, three quarters of an inch thick. Maybe that's kind of thick now that I think about it. And we knew it had like duct tape all over because it had broken a couple times. I mean, it was used. And we knew when we ticked off mom and dad to the point to where dad would say, I'm going to get the stick. Everything changed in our house. But you know what? There was a healthy fear in our house. We knew there were consequences for things. I'm not telling you to go beat your kids. Please do not leave. And But... There was discipline, and, and there was health. And here's what happened. We didn't obey who we didn't fear, but when we feared and we recognized discipline was at play, we listened and we obeyed Dad. And, and the reason why some of us don't care much about obeying and listening to God is because we don't really fear him. You obey and you listen to those that you fear. And there's a flip side to this, because if you don't fear God, you will fear someone else. You see, the throne of your heart is never empty. Someone is always sitting there. And if it's not God, it's going to be you or someone in your life. The person that you say, oh, I just can't live without them. So let's flip this over and ask four more questions about those who fear others. So if you find yourself saying, I don't think I fear others more than God. I don't think I obey and want others' approval more than God. Well, here's a few questions that you should see if you're asking yourself. Number one, what do you think I should do? If you value the opinions of people who don't follow Jesus or 
it's not God's word, but you just want to please other people more than you want to please God, you might fear others more than you fear God. What about number two? And these obviously go hand in hand with the others, other four questions that I asked about fearing God. Number two, who can I get to agree with me? So instead of seeking godly counsel, you, you say, you know what? I got a path that I want to go down, and I know that there's some tension in whether I should really do it or not, but I want to find people, put people around who are yes men in my life. Do you have a bunch of yes men and women, people who you know, they're just going to agree with you. And they're going to say, yeah, you should slander that person. You should, you should talk smack. You should do this. You should quit your job. You should go to the authority. You should do this. And they give you the bad advice that you were hoping they would give you. Because your sin nature was saying, I just want someone to agree with me. And ultimately, you fear what other people think more than you fear God. Number three, you ask yourself, how can I hide this from God and his people? Some of us, we live double lives. Maybe we come to cross training. Maybe we come to church on Sundays. Maybe we gather and we, we show the best side of ourselves, but then we just live differently. And if your heart is one that fears others, you think, I don't want people to find out about some of my secret sin. I don't want people to know that I care more about doing what I want to do and fearing other people's opinions than I do God and his church. You find yourself sometimes starting to despise God and his word and his people because they represent holiness and righteousness to you. And you want to follow a different path. If you fear others, you're going to probably ask yourself, number four, what's the easy way out? You see, God has a narrow way, and it's often the hardest way. If you fear others, then you say, I just, I want to be comfortable. I, I want, I want to, um, I want to show up at death's doorstep safe and sound and secure. And life is bigger than just being comfortable. Sometimes you got to do really hard things. Sometimes you've got to do really hard things. Who do you fear? Whose rejection would wreck you? Whose approval do you fight for? If it's not God, there might be an issue. Let me ask you one last question that might just open this door for you wide open. If you think, well, I don't really fear others more than God. No, you might. Who would you sin for? Who would you sin for? Well, when I'm around this person, we just gossip together. And you don't put an end to it because you care more about what they think than what God thinks. You say, I'm, I'm sleeping with this person and we're not married. And I know, I know what God says about it, but I just care more about not hurting their feelings and wrecking what seems like a pretty decent thing than obeying God. Who would you sin for? Who do you plot and scheme with? Who do you get drunk with? Who do you find yourself compromising your faith with? Because ultimately you care more about what they think of you than you do about what God thinks of you. People who fear God and not fear public opinion know that you cannot simultaneously fear God and fear others. You will love one and you will hate the other. You're going to offend people on earth if you follow Jesus. You're going to have to deny your fleshly desires to follow Jesus.
But thank God Jesus is the hero of this story. Because you and I deserve the cup of wrath poured out on us and Jesus took it. And we're going to end this with one final verse. In verse 14, God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And number six, Jesus is the better Solomon because Jesus is hope. Jesus is hope. This has been kind of a depressing book, hasn't it? Solomon's not very hopeful. (laughs) He's not because he's talking about the kingdom of earth. And it's dark and apart from God, it's just a sad place. There, there isn't meaning and hope apart from God. Some people find it for little bits and they think, oh, if I just get this house, if I just, if I just get this girl, if I just get this life, if I just get this, but then they get those things and it doesn't lead to fulfillment or satisfaction and they still have that God-sized hole in their heart. Solomon can't deliver us, but Jesus can. God knows everything. He's going to judge everything. You can't escape judgment. God will judge us. What's, what's the every little secret thing in your life? What, 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 what do you have going on that you know? I need to let God have access to that part of me. I need to repent. But you don't fear him enough and you fear, you fear your flesh more. You can't escape judgment, but you can swap resumes with Jesus. I was meeting with a guy today, and we'll wrap it up with this. I was meeting with a guy, and he came in, um, and he was literally wearing the exact same clothes as me. You ever see someone with, like, the same shirt as you? But, like, we weren't just wearing the same shirt. My shirt, this shirt tends to wrinkle a lot, and his was just as wrinkly as mine. I thought, gosh, that's weird. And he had the same color undershirt on, and he was wearing it the same way, and he had jeans. And I was, we just laughed. We saw each other. We're like, you got to be kidding me. And we just kind of giggled about it. It was just weird. And for the whole meeting, even when it got serious, I was just like, dude, I'm sorry. I, can, I feel like I'm looking in the mirror. I don't know if me and you wearing the same clothes, if this means that I'm cooler than I was before or not as cool. I don't know what it, I don't know what it means, but we just laughed. It was just weird to be wearing the exact same thing. There's going to be a day when you and I, if our faith is in Christ, will stand before the father and we will be judged. And if we're wearing his righteousness, if as Martin Luther says, we have experienced the great exchange our sin for his righteousness on the cross. That, that when the Father sees you on Judgment Day, he doesn't see your past resume of brokenness, but he sees his son's resume of perfection and holiness and righteousness. That's going to be a day you're not going to laugh about wearing the same thing as Jesus. But you are going to be more thankful than you can ever imagine. Where's your hope? Where's your hope? Have you found yourself over the last 21 weeks finding your affection for Jesus stirred up and growing? Your desire for repentance and and aligning your life with God, growing obedience to him, growing? Your fear and your knowledge of him, growing? Your experience in how awesome he is, growing? If not, 
you might need to reread Ecclesiastes. Jesus is hope. Where's your hope? Let's pray.